Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I have a question for you this morning. How many of you like to be right? Some of you naturally looked at your husband. You looked at somebody else. I saw that look that you gave just a moment ago. I mean, how, how many of you just like to be right? I, I think most of us do, right? Most of us want to be correct. Most of us want to present the right information. Most of us want to get the question right. Most all of us. Not many of us want to be wrong about something, look foolish about something. Most all of us want to be right. Well, let me ask you this question. How many of you want to be righteous? Because I think that is the question. I think that is the question that we need to answer in our lives. And hopefully for those of us who have accepted Christ and recognized it, we understand that we can be righteous. Apart from the law and apart from ourselves, we can be righteous. I want to show you today as we look at this passage how Paul says that we can be righteous. How he speaks to us about the possibility of us being righteous before God. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. As Paul writes, this is what he says. But now, but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. But there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is exclu excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul sets forth this idea of righteousness. And he says that righteousness is being revealed. Now, you'll remember in chapter 1, verse 17, he spoke about how the gospel was being revealed. The righteousness was being revealed through the gospel itself, the good news. In verse 18, it talked about how the wrath of God was being revealed. Now here's a different word, but still the same kind of idea. That the righteousness of God was shining forth for all to see. Notice verse 21, he says, but now. Those two words speak such significance to us. Now, as you were reading through that passage along with me, you found some very theologically rich language, didn't you? I mean, some of those words... Some of those words we would have trouble pronouncing. I had to practice this week, okay? 
because they are such large, significant theological words. But yet, Lloyd-Jones, as he was preaching through this book, as he was studying this book, he said that of all of the words that were used, perhaps those first two in verse 21 speak with most significance. He said they might be the most beautiful words in all of the Scripture. But now. What does he mean by that? Well, as you would look through the first couple of chapters, even into the, that early part of chapter 3, you'd find Paul giving us the bad news. I mean, he, he was really setting the stage. He was showing us how a godless Gentile society and how a legalistic Jewish society both lacked life and vitality. How both lacked righteousness before God. And then what he does is he says, but now. He makes this transition. He pivots. And this is what he says to us about obtaining righteousness. He says that basically we can receive or we must receive his righteousness from God. We must receive his righteousness, the Lord's righteousness, Christ's righteousness through God himself. In the last few verses that we've looked at, we've seen how our standing before a holy God demonstrates our sinfulness. I mean, we did verse 18 and following of that first chapter. He painted for us this vivid picture, this description of what a godless Gentile society would look like. We read through that. Then when you get to chapter 2, and you see where he talks about how the Jewish people, even though they had the law, had become committed to their legalistic ways and how they themselves had missed the true righteousness of God. And then, here in this passage, chapter 3, verse 23, this is what he said. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I was looking at that verse again, studying it. And there in the first part, he uses this like past tense. He says, for all have sinned. In other words, there was a point in history. There was a point in our lives where all have sinned. Perhaps he's talking about how humanity, through Adam himself, through Eve, how we sinned in that moment. But I think it is even more personal than that. I think it speaks to how all of us, at some moment, specific time, we broke the law of God. All of us have sinned. The second part of that verse says, and come short of the glory of God. The tense of that second part is a present tense. In other words, we go on and on and on, falling short of the glory of God. It's the idea that we continue to miss the mark. God sets this ideal, and yet we continue to fall short, miss the mark. I don't know how many of you have any kind of archery blood in you. A few of you? None of you? Miss Irma, can you shoot a bow and arrow, maybe? Not today. You're not going to do it for us. I was hoping for a demonstration, but that's okay. You know you have to aim in the right direction. Hopefully, your sights, your sights are right on. And you try to hit that 
Target. One of the things I love about Ruston, Louisiana, I don't know if I should say this. Any law enforcement folks here? One of the things I love about Ruston, Louisiana is that uh, in your own backyard, there are little critters that come out. And you can take, it is legal to take a bow or a crossbow and shoot those little critters. Did you know that? I didn't admit to anything. I didn't say anything. But you have to be on. You have to hit the target. See, most of us in our lives spiritually, we have set the target. And what is our target? Well, our target is the best person we know. We look around at others and we say, oh man, that's a person that has such a godly life. They're so righteous. They do so much for the kingdom. And what we do is we put them here. And then what do we do? We aim for that kind of example in our lives. Now, I'm not saying to you it's bad to try to aim or imitate other individuals. I'm not saying that. Paul, he gave his own example and said, imitate me. I'm not saying it's totally wrong to follow somebody's godly example. But what I'm saying to you is that the standard of righteousness is not found in other individuals around you. The standard of righteousness is not found even in the best person you know. The standard of righteousness was given to us in the example in the person of the Lord Jesus. And He is our measure. And as we look at our lives, we recognize how not only have we sinned in a decisive way, but we have fallen short. We have missed the mark continually in our life of Christ Jesus. We miss the ideal. We continue to do that. And that's what Paul has told us through this description, through this picture, is that our own righteousness will never measure up to the righteousness of God. As a matter of fact, earlier in this chapter, as you look at chapter 3, verses 9 and following, you see where he'll quote Psalms. You'll see where he'll quote from the book of Isaiah how he'll speak about how none is righteous. None. Not one individual is truly righteous when you stand before God. At least not on your own. You can't be good enough. You can't be great enough to be righteous before such a holy God. That's what he says. Now, I'm not saying to you that all of us that all of us are as bad as we could be. I'm not saying that. I mean, even unbelievers can do something that looks good every now and then. Would you agree with me? I'm proud of you of you listening this morning. Even unbelievers, even unbelievers can do something that may look good. I'm not telling you that we are all as bad as we could be. But the statement that has been made before that is so true is that all of us, all of us are as bad off as we could be without Christ. All of us are as bad off. All of us fall short of the glory. And, and it doesn't matter if we get 60% of it or we get 70% of it or 
if somehow we got 99% of it, we still fall short of God's ideal. And we're all as bad off as we could be. So now listen to the significance of those two words again. But now. But now. In other words, Paul says there is something that is different. There is something that we can experience. Even though all of us, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. He says there is something different that we can see through the righteousness of God. That which is shining forth. Which we see through Jesus Christ. That somehow through him we can receive a new righteousness. We receive his righteousness from God himself. Notice as he says again in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Look in verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Here he says that somehow we can be justified. A transfer of righteousness from God, from Christ Jesus to us. Justified. What does justified mean? Well, basically, it means in a court of law that you would, you would be declared not guilty. You're okay. You're right. You're righteous. So here you are, standing in a court of law. And according to the testimony of Scripture, you are guilty. And so am I. As we stand before a holy judge, the judge, God himself, we are all guilty. But something happens. We can become justified. We can be assigned this verdict, not guilty, innocent, righteous. How does that happen? Well, the righteousness of Christ has to be transferred to us. It has to be transferred. We can't do it on our own. We can't, we can't stand before him. So Christ, his righteousness has to be transferred to us so that we can be justified. And then we're given this word which demonstrates how this all happened. The word propitiation. That's a great word, right? You want to look smart, just use it at lunch today. Hey, did you hear the preacher talking about propitiation? I mean, I mean think, propitiation. What does that mean? Different translations may give you insight to various aspects of its meaning. I believe as I've studied this word that it speaks to the atonement of Christ in our lives and it also in a dual way speaks about how the work of Christ or Christ himself became the object of wrath which turned aside the wrath of God. So let me flesh that out for you just a moment, okay? In the Jewish life, there was one day a year when the high priest would go in to the holiest of holies. We call it the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This was the Day of Atonement where they would be able to go in. You remember the process as this day came? Basically, the high priest would take two goats. He would take these goats, he would cast lots to determine the sovereign will of God. 
And as one lot fell to a certain goat, that goat would be sacrificed. The high priest would take that blood, would basically apply it to the mercy seat of God there in the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel for that year. The goat that was a little more fortunate, well, the high priest would confess the sins of the nation over this goat. The goat would be allowed to go into the wilderness, and thus he would be called the scapegoat. Ah, some of you didn't know that, did you? I just saw it just clicking with you. That's where we get the idea of the scapegoat. The sins were confessed over that goat, and the goat was then allowed to just continue to wander in the wilderness outside the camp. This same idea of propitiation, atonement, it goes along the idea of God covering the sins of his people. Covering the sins of his people. So Jesus Christ became our atonement. Jesus Christ, well, he lived a sinless life. He did measure up to the standard. 100% of the time, 100% of his efforts, his teaching, everything perfect. Christ. So he was the perfect sacrifice to atone. You and I could not have done this. Now, we deserve death. We deserve death on the cross. But Jesus paid this substitutional death for us. And because of that, listen, because of that, his righteousness, his payment can be transferred to us. We can be justified through him. So when we stand before God, we're not just standing before him in our righteousness. We're actually standing before God the Father in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. How awesome is that? You see, but now, but now, the righteousness of God is being revealed. It is shining forth through us because of Christ. Also, this idea of propitiation, as I said, carries with it the idea of turning away wrath, the object of wrath. Let, let's, let's put it this way, and I know this is very simplistic. Dr. Lemke, when you go back to seminary, do not tell them I used this simplistic example, please. But, but, let, but let's say, in a very simple way, we try to illustrate a propitiation, like something that would absorb the wrath of someone else. Let, let's, say, let's say this morning that after uh, I get through preaching this wonderful message that all of you are real intended to this morning, that, that was sarcasm, by the way. And when I walk down, about to walk out, Robert Davis, lovely, wonderful Robert Davis, Robert, you're what, about six foot? Six five, yeah, six five. He decides to pick a fight with me. I don't know why he would, but let's say he would. And actually, he just tries, he, he just blindsides me when I'm walking by. When I get up, finally, after about 45 minutes, <clears throat> can you imagine how mad I would be? I mean, the anger. Would you call it righteous indignation? Would you call that? Maybe. 
Some of you say, no, he, you deserve it. Okay, all right. Then that's, that's what you believe. That's what you believe. But I think there could be some righteous indignation that I would have. And, of course, Robert, being very scared of me because of my physical attributes, probably he's running, hidden at this point. But let's say I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to find him. I'm looking through, I'm searching through the church and I can't find him, but he knows that he is the object of my wrath. Tim McCarthy, Tim sitting here and behind him, he catches me and says, listen, Rich, I know that was terrible what he did. I know that that's just Robert. He has a wicked heart and all of this kind of stuff. But I sit behind him every Sunday and I pray for him that he would just, whatever you're going to do, would you just, would you just do it to me? Let, just, just take it out on me. I said, Tim, you know how bad this is going to be? I mean, yeah, he's like, just, just go ahead, take it out on me. Now, listen, I know it's simplistic. I know it is. But basically, in that scenario, Tim becomes the propitiation. And I take my wrath out there instead of upon, upon Robert. Now, I know that analogy breaks down in a whole lot of different ways. But hopefully... You can kind of get this idea of what a propitiation is. According to what you see in the New Testament, the way the word was used, it was used, yes, with a sense of atonement. Because atonement and this idea of satisfying the wrath of God, it goes hand in hand. Now, some of you, again, you're like me. You have trouble envisioning this idea of God's wrath. I mean, it is hard to envision because... We believe a God who is loving, compassionate. Yes, we do. But notice this is where His holiness, His wrath, actually intersects with love and sacrifice. Because a holy God has to deal with sin. We've said that. So how does He deal with sin? Well, the punishment either comes upon the sinner or upon the sacrifice. And what God did, He took the initiative. He took the initiative. In sending Jesus Christ for us to become the atonement and also to become the object of wrath, God has to deal with sin if he is to be a holy God. That's the reason later on it says that he, through this, might be just and the justifier. In other words, he maintains his holiness because he deals with sin, but he is also the one who acts on our behalf to give us the salvation that we so desperately need. And Jesus Christ took the wrath of the Father that you and I, that you and I so desperately deserved. You've heard me say this. I'll repeat it again. On the cross, Jesus certainly suffered physically. Even even the way it is portrayed for us in movies, even as it is portrayed for us in literature, we can feel the physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross. But that pain compared nothing. It was nothing compared to the pain that he endured spiritually 
as the wrath of the Father was poured out upon him. Darkness that consumed the land. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he did that so that he could transfer his righteousness to us. You see, we receive his righteousness. How are we going to be righteous? Well, we receive his righteousness from God. The righteousness of Christ. We receive it by grace. By grace. Listen to what he says again. He says that it is through grace. It is through the unmerited favor of God. Verse 24. Being justified freely by grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace. Again, the classic definition is the unmerited favor of God. You and I do nothing to deserve it. But God looks at us in favor and demonstrates that favor upon our hearts and lives as we receive it. There's nothing we can do. Our best efforts, I told you a moment ago, our best efforts are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. So grace, grace. The word there that is used also is redemption or redeem. It means the buying back of a slave. New Testament times, obviously if you were in debt, you could sell yourself into slavery. It was this indentured, indentured servanthood. You could sell yourself, and basically with some of those who would enslave others that day. They were so unscrupulous that they could rig it to where you would never be able to pay your debt off. Even though in theory it would be proportional to your debt. They, they could move it to where you could never pay your debt off. So what would have to happen? Somebody would have to come and redeem you. They'd have to pay your debt, buy you out of slavery. There's nothing you could do because you're a slave. I mean... You can't make any more money. You can't do any more. I mean, there's really nothing you can do. Somebody would have to intervene. That's the picture that's painted for us. That's the picture of salvation. Is that we were enslaved. We were in bondage. There's nothing we could do. We couldn't pay it off. We were in so much debt. So Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice again, made the payment to free us. The exodus event in the New Testament believer. We've been studying that on Wednesday night, how God delivered his people from bondage. Great miracle. We celebrated that together to think of the Red Sea parting and walking across on dry land. The people, I mean, how incredible is that? It's not nearly as incredible as what Jesus Christ did for you to deliver you. It takes a whole lot more power to forgive sin than it does to even part the waters. We've been redeemed. We receive it by grace. Oh, but that goes against everything that I've been taught. 
Everything that I've been taught says you got to do something. You've got to earn something. You got to be something. Everything. You, you just don't take something freely. And later on, Paul will say to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The gift. You just receive it. Can't work for it. Listen. Jesus plus anything else is legalism. Jesus plus nothing else is liberty. Legalism will never save you. But the liberty you find in Jesus Christ will. So when it comes to salvation, salvation is not Jesus plus something else. Salvation is simply Jesus. Nothing else. Jesus. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only sacrifice that is worthy. Jesus. You receive it. So we are righteous. We are righteous when we receive His righteousness by grace. And obviously, that grace is activated and appropriated in our hearts and lives through faith. Listen to what he says once again. He says, it's through grace, verse 24, verse 27. He'll say, where is the boasting then? It's excluded. In other words... There's nothing you can go out and boast about. You can't talk about your great works that got you there because that's, that's not how you got there. He says in verse 30, Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Earlier, he had said, Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So he says it doesn't matter who you are. You have to activate that grace in your life through faith. You can come from a Gentile heritage. You can come from a Jewish heritage. Whatever your background, whoever you are, it has to be through faith. Faith, well, that is that complete surrender and trust. Remember last week we talked just a moment about this idea of belief? In the New Testament, you'll see oftentimes the verb believe. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That word there is faith. And as I mentioned last week, in our English, we don't have a verb, faith. We, we just don't. You don't go around and say, hey, yeah, I faith you. It means I trust you, I believe you. It, if I said that to you, you'd be like, whoa, he's been in the books a little too long. Doesn't make sense. You don't use the word. You don't use it as a verb in such a way. But in the New Testament, it was a verb. It could be a noun, faith, the faith that you have. Or it could be, I faith you. Those on all who faith. Because faith is more than just a simple intellectual assent or belief. Faith is a total surrender and submission to Jesus 
as Lord. You have to come to that faith. And that faith activates the grace in your life. And then the righteousness is transferred to whom you are. Perhaps one of the best examples was given to me recently. As I sat and ate lunch with one of my friends here in Ruston, Brother Maurice White, pastor at Sign Traveler. Maurice and I were talking about different things, and he said, You know, when I was at Dillard University there in New Orleans, I got something in the mail. It was a credit card. I was so excited as a college student to get such a credit card. I just, I went, I was so overjoyed. I took that credit card, I went right down to the mall. I walked right into the mall. I picked out my new outfit because a college kid needs some new outfits. Picked them out, went up to buy my clothes, gave them that credit card. They swiped it. Didn't work. They swiped it again. Didn't work. They, he said, oh, just a minute. You d I just got that. Got to. Got plenty of limit on there. You do it one more time. Swipe. Did not work. The lady behind the cashier said, have you activated this? He's like, what? You got to activate these credit cards? You got to activate the credit card. When he shared that with me the other day, I said, you know, that is. Just as we were talking, that is the idea. God, God's already, listen, he's already taken care of the credit line. He's, he's already paid everything. He's already given the ransom for our sins. He is ready to apply his righteousness to us. And all we've got to do, activate it. Through faith. Through total surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. But now. <laughs> but now. The righteousness of God can be applied to our hearts and lives. And as we stand before Him. As we stand before Him. We do not plead our own unworthy righteousness. But we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You can be right. You can be righteous. You can be righteous as you receive His righteousness from God by grace through faith. And that is the only way that you and I will ever stand before Him in such a worthy manner. May we plead Christ. May we plead His righteousness. May it be applied to our hearts and lives through the faith that we have demonstrated. And may we know the eternal life and sacrifice of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. And God, we are thankful. We are thankful mostly because you came and you paid the price for us. You turned away the wrath of the Father. You atoned for our sins. 
And God, you've, uh, you've offered your righteousness to us. God, for those of us who have activated it through faith already, those of us who have accepted it by grace, just as a gift, God, we praise you, we thank you. We know where we came from and we know now where we are. But God, for that one which is lost here in this place, that is depending upon their works, their goodness, that one this morning, Lord, who has never had this transferal of righteousness into their life, God, I pray that you would save them. And Lord, we'll give you the honor and the glory for it. Father, we praise you for this place. Give us this moment of reflection, invitation to respond to you. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Would you stand?